With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Fans First Sports Network listeners, welcome to another episode of The Call Sheet, a podcast that breaks down the great game of football from an X and O perspective, a coaching perspective, looks at how the whole thing works. And I'm your host, Kevin Smith. I'm really pleased and proud to be able to bring this humble little show to you. I appreciate the following that it's building. It's very exciting to be able to talk about something that you're passionate about with, with people who share that passion. And I'm pleased to do it here on Fans First and also over at the Steel Curtain Network, where I host the Here We Go podcast with Brian Anthony Davis. And I'm also the head football coach at Ocean City High School, where I've been coaching for, wow, almost almost three decades now, man. Time, time flies. It's amazing how fast it goes. So we are into June and there's some OTAs going on and some mini camps and uh, it's still football in short season, but the NFL teams are starting to do some things that look like real football. But there's still off-season news to sort through. And one of the things that's been a big story over the last couple of weeks is the DeAndre Hopkins story. What's happened with him? He's been released by the Arizona Cardinals. He's currently looking for a landing spot. And we're going to talk about that in part today, but we're going to do it as part of a broader conversation. And that broader conversation is going to be about the wide receiver position, or in other words, my least favorite position group in the game of football. Now I'm going to say what I'm about to say. It's a little bit tongue in cheek, but it's also a little bit serious because for every fan out there who loves the flashy play of the game's great receivers, and I have to say there's something wonderful about it the grace and the beauty and the athleticism that some of the most skilled receivers in the world possess. There's also someone like me who sees them as the divas of the sport. And I know I'm painting receivers all with one brush and I know that that's unfair. And again, there's, this is partly tongue in cheek, but you, you have to understand I played safety in college. I was taught to hate receivers. And as a coach, I can honestly say that I've probably had more issues with receivers than players at any other position, trying to get them to do some of the hard things that their teammates willingly do, like block and be physical and go hard in the weight room, the intangibles that create a winning culture. When I'm when I'm at my most cynical self, I see receivers as a group, a group of guys who just want to catch the football. And when they don't, 
or when they're not given what they believe are a sufficient number of opportunities to catch the ball, they complain. And that's my totally biased and completely unfair hot take on receivers. But if I'm being a little bit more honest about it, I think most receivers work on their game as hard as or even harder than many other positions. The, the reps it takes to perfect the art of route running and catching the football under hostile conditions. Think about the fast physical defenders trying to knock your block off as you catch the football. It's really incredible. For example, our football field at Ocean City High School is owned by the city, so it's open to everybody. And it's a beautiful facility. It's a turf field less than 100 yards off the beach in a resort town of about 12,000 year-round residents that blew over 20,000 people in the summertime. And at, at any given moment during those summer months, I can walk out onto our field and I'm going to see quarterbacks and receivers just doing their thing. And receivers in particular, going through cone drills, routes on air, working on their 40, working on their cuts, working on their breaks, on their hand skills, et cetera. And yeah, I see high school kids, college kids. There's even NFL guys that, that have been out there over the last couple of years. It's great to see. And I think it's that work, that work ethic. That's why so many receivers are so passionate about their craft. And they often get criticized for being demonstrative or calling attention to themselves when they don't get the ball enough because they know how hard they've worked and they believe in themselves and they want the chance to show what they can do. And so it may be selfish in some ways, but I think it also comes from a very real and very inspired place. I think receivers are complicated more than anything else. Maybe that's the best way to put it. And you know, these complications come into play when you consider the value of receivers to today's NFL offenses. There's no question the NFL is a passing league now. And I don't think I need to recite a bunch of numbers to convince you of that. But if I do quickly, here are a few. If you go back to 1977, and I'm, I picked that date for a reason. I'll tell you why in a second. In 1977, offenses ran the ball 56% of the time. They threw it 44%. And that offseason, the league enacted the so-called Mel Blunt rule, which was named after Pittsburgh's future Hall of Fame corner, who was notoriously physical with receivers all over the field. When Mel Blunt played, you could contact receivers wherever you wanted just as long as the ball wasn't already in the air. So you could chuck them 15 yards down the field if the ball wasn't yet thrown. But they changed that rule. And that rule made it a penalty to contact a wide receiver more than five yards down the field. And immediately, it opened up the game. And teams started to throw the ball more. So in 1978, the year after they passed that rule, passes increased from 44 to 48%. And in 1979, they went up to 51%. And it's just been a slow and steady climb. Ever since, 55% by 1990, 57% by 2000. And today, it's almost 60%. It's almost a 60-40 pass-to-run ratio. And we've reached a point where teams who can't throw the ball in football rarely succeed in the modern game. I mean, as evidence, consider this. Last year, 2022, only four of the teams in the bottom half of the league in terms of passing frequency meaning the teams who, who threw the ball the least, really, in the bottom half of the league. Only four of those 16 teams made the playoffs. Meanwhile, 10 of the 16 teams with the highest passing frequencies made the playoffs. Teams that throw the ball often and, of course, throw it well are more likely to succeed. And, you know, there are outliers. 
Philly and San Francisco come to mind. They're two of the league's best offenses, and they were in that bottom 16. But it's hard to argue that a run-first ball control offense gives more than a handful of teams a chance to succeed, as opposed to the alternative, which is to land a franchise quarterback and build an offense around his passing talent. The franchise quarterback is the key. All the best offenses in the league have a guy who fits that description. Mahomes in Kansas City, Josh Allen in Buffalo, Burrow in Cincinnati, and then you got up-and-comers like Jacksonville and the Chargers, Miami. They've got franchise guys or borderline franchise guys. Philly, of course, has one, even though they don't pass as much. The Jets now have one in Aaron Rodgers. Only San Francisco, really, which has made a bunch of deep playoff runs in, in recent years with the likes of Colin Kaepernick and Jimmy Garoppolo and Brock Purdy. Only the 49ers are the exception. Otherwise, the franchise quarterback seems non-negotiable if you want to contend. But what about a star receiver? That's that's our, our focus here, and that's, that's a more interesting question. Is a top-level receiver necessary to elevate a team's passing game to where it needs to be in, in order to contend for a championship? I think the answer to that question is a definitive maybe. And yes, I understand. Maybe is the ultimate cop-out. Totally unsatisfying. And in the modern media world, there aren't supposed to be maybes. There's supposed to be definitives. Everything's supposed to be black and white. And then we're supposed to argue about the opposite perspective. But the truth is, sometimes the in-between is where you find the answer. It's probably like that more often than not. So it may be necessary to build your passing game around a star receiver, or you may be able to create a great passing game using a collaborative approach. It all depends on how you structure your passing game and what, what an offense is hoping to accomplish. If we look at the collaborative standpoint, history shows us that a passing offense can be successful without truly elite receivers if a team can spread the ball around enough to a core of smart and disciplined pass catchers whose collective talents create a considerable enough sum. Take Kansas City, for example. The Chiefs were obviously scary with Tyreek Hill. He's a bona fide star. But guess what? They were fantastic last year without him. They led the league last season with 288.9 passing yards per game. That was up by four-tenths of a yard from 288.5 in 2021. It's an incremental amount, but it's an increase nonetheless without Hill in the lineup. More impressive was this. Their yards per pass went from 7.3 in 2021 with Hill to 8.1 without him. That was a jump from 13th in the league up to third. They were getting more yards per pass without Hill than with him. And that shows they were still able to push the ball down the field or create run after the catch opportunities without their most celebrated receiver. The players that they added to replace Hill, Juju Smith-Schuster and Marquez Valdez-Scandling, they fit Kansas City's scheme beautifully. Smith-Schuster was a great middle-of-the-field guy who could create matchup problems in the slot, and Valdez-Scandling could stretch the field. He he actually averaged more yards per catch, 16.4 to Hill's 14.4 than Hill did last year. So Kansas City found ways to account for the lack of a star receiver by finding players who fit their system really well. And I, you know, some of you may be listening right now and saying, all right, fine, but Patrick Mahomes put him on, on any roster and that team will have a great passing game. And I get that. And that's a good point, And I concede that point. So let's look at a different example. Let's look at Detroit, right? The lions 
finished sixth in passing yards per game last year at just over 250. And they were sixth in yards per pass, which put them ahead of more celebrated passing offenses like the Bills and the Bengals and the Vikings. And their receiving core, it was good, but not great. They were led by Amon Ross St. Brown, who had a big year, 106 catches. And then by DJ Chark, who's a good receiver. He averaged almost 17 yards per catch. And their quarterback was Jared Goff, who had a really strong year for them. But again, good, not elite. The key to success in Detroit was their ability to spread the ball around. The Lions had 13 players catch at least 10 passes. That's a huge number. And they had 10 players catch at least one touchdown pass. And they also protected Goff with an an effective rushing attack that allowed him to take deep shots off of play action. Goff finished sixth in the NFL in pass attempts of over 20 yards. And he also finished 10th in clean pocket rate which is a fairly obscure but really informative statistic that tells you that when he did throw the ball, he generally had time to scan the field and locate an open receiver. And it doesn't take me or anybody with a high football IQ to tell you that it's way easier throwing the ball from a clean pocket than it was with a bunch of clutter in your face. So in the absence of elite wide receivers, Detroit crafted a highly effective passing game through smart game planning and a solid run game and a good offensive line. And that let them push the ball down the field more and it was round and it was an excellent recipe for success. But I don't want to overstate this position. Obviously, when you ask anyone who's ever worn a whistle, what makes a great coach? The answer should include great players. I mean, it's hard to win without them. When you look back at the great dynasties in football history, in the modern era anyway, you find that they almost all had stars at the receiver position. If you go back to the 70s, the Steelers, they had Swan and Stallworth. The 49ers in the 80s had Taylor and Rice. The Redskins were great in that era too. They had the fun bunch receivers. And the Cowboys in the 90s had Michael Irvin and Alvin Harper. And then you get to the early 2000s and the Rams had the greatest show on turf, which featured Isaac Bruce and Torrey Holt. I mean, the Patriots are a little bit of an outlier, but then again, they had the GOAT at quarterback in Tom Brady. And the one year where they did have a superstar receiver in Randy Moss, they ripped off 18 straight wins before being upset in the Super Bowl by the Giants. And, you know, you look at the best offenses in the game today, short of Kansas City, they're loaded with star power at the receiver position. Buffalo's got Stephon Diggs. Philly's got A.J. Brown and Devonta Smith. The Vikings have Justin Jefferson. The Bengals have Jamar Chase. Long story short, You can win without a great receiver, but man, it sure helps if you have one. Which brings us to the topic at hand. You know, I'm really getting at right now, I should say, which is which team would benefit the most by signing DeAndre Hopkins? And is Hopkins still a superstar? And is he the kind of guy that can transform an offense? He was released recently by Arizona for a host of reasons. I mean, for starters, he's 31 years old. He was set to make... $19 $19 million next year, and the Cardinals were not going to pay him that much at this stage of his career, especially since he's played less than 50% of the snaps in Arizona over the past two seasons. And there's reports that Hopkins was disgruntled in Arizona. He didn't want to be there anymore. He didn't love playing with Kyler Murray. He wanted to go somewhere where he could chase a ring. And the Cardinals, in return, they didn't love the fact that he sat out the final couple of games last year despite being healthy. I think there are some people there who maybe feel felt like he quit a little bit on the Cardinals. So they tried to trade him, but his big contract made that pretty difficult, so they let him go. 
And now here he is on the open market, a former elite receiver who still has a lot of gas left in his tank. I mean, as recently as 2020, Hopkins had 115 catches for over 1,400 yards. But there's been some injuries since then and a PED suspension and the struggles of the Cardinals in general have cut into his production. He remains an excellent receiver for sure. Uh, maybe not an elite an elite one. That'll be the interesting question. He, he could still be a number one or a number two. Can he be transformative? Can he transform an offense? That's the interesting question. So who might that team be, right? And to revert back to the question we asked earlier, what would adding a receiver like Hopkins mean to a team who feels like it's a player or two away from being a serious contender? Let's look at that latter question first and talk about the value of a star receiver. The biggest value a star receiver adds to an offense comes in terms of versatility and matchups. I mean, the NFL is a matchup league. And if you can get great matchups, you can succeed on offense. For example, when, the, when an offense aligns in a three-by-one formation and they have a stud at receiver and they play him on the single side, away from the trips, it really creates a dilemma for the defense. Does that defense feel confident rotating their coverage to the trips to help out with the numbers advantage an offense is trying to create there and then playing that stud receiver man-to-man on the backside? Or do they have a, do they lack, I should say, a guy who can shut down that stud receiver? Do they have to keep a safety over there or kick a linebacker out of the box into the alley to the single receiver side as help? A defense that has to help weakens itself to the trips by allowing the offense to gain a numbers advantage. And a defense that helps to the trip side and goes one-on-one takes a big gamble that they can stop the stud receiver. So either way, the offense feels like it's in a good position. Now, And then there are the matchups that using shifts and motions can create. If an offense coordinator, for example, can get a good feel for how defenses rotate or adjust, he can scheme his stud receiver into a favorable matchup. If a team runs with motion, for example, which usually indicates man coverage, you can now send a speedy receiver like Tyree Kill or Devonta Smith across the formation and then run rubs and picks at the defender trying to run with him. Navigating that sort of clutter, that's almost impossible in man coverage. And if it's zone and the defense prefers to bump coverage or adjust with their safeties, now the offense can position their stud in a place that targets the weak area in the zone or its weakest defender. Again, matchups. That's what you strive to get in the NFL. And when you have a star receiver, you can swing the matchup game in your favor. And then to the former question, who should sign Hopkins? Well, there are a few suitors for whom taking that plunge would make sense. We've heard rumors of Hopkins to Kansas City, who, like we've said before, they don't have star power at the receiver position. They lost Smith-Schuster Make a lot of sense to add him there. We've heard Buffalo, where pairing him with Diggs would be attractive. Recently, we've been hearing Dallas. The Giants are said to be kicking the tires a bit. All of those teams would make sense. But the clubhouse leader to sign Hopkins, it seems, at least according to Las Vegas, where, yes, they actually have odds on this. I don't think there's anything you can't get odds on in in Vegas, and you can get odds on which team will will sign Hopkins. The clubhouse leader at the moment is the Cleveland Browns. So we're going to take a break right now. And on the other side, we're going to talk to a big Browns fan and a big Browns podcaster from the Fanatical Elves Network about the possibility of the Browns signing Hopkins and what that might do for the team that he covers. 
So please stick around and we will be right back. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welcome back to the call sheet. Kevin Smith with you on the Fans First Sports Network. Before the break, we were talking about wide receivers. And the the big question we were kicking around was, do you need an elite receiver to have an elite offense in the NFL these days? And we were segueing that into a conversation about DeAndre Hopkins and where he might wind up. And to talk about all that, I'm going to have a guest with me, big Cleveland Browns fan, because there's a lot of Browns buzz. Uh, a a podcaster from the Fanatical Elves Network and host of the Johnny Cleveland podcast, Mr. John Suchan. John, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I appreciate you having me along tonight. Yeah, so we got a Steelers fan talking to a Browns fan. I know, this is is really hard, man. (laughs) We're going to make peace in the Middle East right here in this conversation. (laughs) That's right. Yeah, fantastic. So, so before the break, like I said, we were talking some DeAndre Hopkins and Las Vegas, which actually puts odds on these things, has Cleveland right now as the, the odds on favorite to land Hopkins. And so let me start with this question. What are, what are your general thoughts on, on that subject? Is that something you'd be in favor of? Do you think he's a good fit in Cleveland? General thoughts. Uh, general thoughts, I'd be in favor of it. Um, not sure exactly if he would be the right fit, but He's played with um, Deshaun Watson, obviously back in Houston, uh, what, between 2017, 2019 were some of DeAndre Hopkins' best years. Um, So the two know each other. I know uh, Watson came out. Many of the players in the Browns, they're having their mini camp this this week. And, you know, Amari Cooper, Deshaun Watson, they all spoke on the matter yesterday. So, yeah, I think it would be – I mean – ideally it would be great. I know um, some folks look at the Browns and they say, well, the Browns already have wide, wide receivers, but you can never have too few wide receivers. And you're talking about an all pro uh, pro bowler. And uh, he's still got a couple years around now. He's going to be demanding a lot of money. And I, I can share on that here in a bit if you wanted to, but um, yeah, it's uh I wouldn't turn him down. Uh, we'll see what happens. I, I heard there was some news that broke tonight here in Cleveland about um, Hopkins has a, an appointment with the Houston, or I'm sorry, the Tennessee Titans uh, first on his tour uh, for free agency. And uh, so that kind of, it, all the news yesterday was about the Browns and, and, and the uh, players that were really kind of pumping for his uh, to come over to Cleveland. So it kind of diffused that a little bit tonight when that news came that the Browns hadn't scheduled yet a, a, uh, an appointment for Hopkins to come in to, to visit. So not sure exactly what that's supposed to look like. So. <laughs> yeah. It's hard to tell sometimes in these recruitments, right? What, what's a genuine interest versus something being used as leverage and it, right. 
you know, the, yeah. this this time of year makes liars out of everybody. I always say that about the draft. It's it's a it's a season of lying. Right, um, right, right. So um, so let me so let me let me ask you this. Yeah, uh, you you mentioned that the Browns are deep at receiver, fairly deep, and obviously right now Cooper's their number one. Right. What's their biggest need on offense? Are they are they in need of a of a deeper receiver room, or do they have bigger needs elsewhere? Well, I would say, say their their bigger needs are probably still, you know, even the offensive line. I know we've touted the Browns' offensive line over the last few seasons, um, but they've been beat up. They've been banged up. Uh, they they don't have – Jedrick Wills is the guy that plays left tackle for the Browns, and, um, you know, they he'll still be there this year, but there's been some questions about, you know, would – would they would they let him go eventually? Um, so there's still some need and depth that needs to be uh, taken care of for, for the Browns' offensive line. I would say that would be the biggest need. I mean, tight ends. You know, you look at the tight end room. We've got David Njoku. N- uh, they just brought in Jordan Atkins, uh, who's played with Deshaun Watson from the Texans. They are, have Harrison Bryant, who's had three really solid seasons. So, you know. Obviously, we haven't talked about the quarterback or our running back room is pretty solid, but the running back room is the other question mark this year. Uh, in past years, you've had, you know, Nick Chubb. Obviously, he's he's our number one, but then you had Kareem Hunt. Kareem Hunt's not going to be there. It was odd to see uh, Chubb yesterday on some video uh, with Kareem Hunt nowhere to be found. And usually in the past, you've always seen the two of them sort of hanging out together or, or in the same vicinity when they've been practicing. So that'll be an interesting area that the Browns are really going to have to explore. Yeah. So when I think about the Browns on offense as a Steeler fan, I'm always terrified <laughs> of their ability just to try to slam the ball down your throat. And when I, we go back to the Browns had that really good run a couple of years ago when they, yeah. when they pounded the Steelers in the playoffs uh, and it all sort of started with the run game, but it's yeah. interesting. You, it does sound as though there's a little bit of a transition in offense. You sort of turned it over to Deshaun Watson. What did you think mm-hmm. of Watson's performance last year? Obviously, he was coming <laughs> in under, you know, clearly not the best circumstances well, off just, of the suspension. How did how do he play in general? Well, I would say you know back then. I mean, obviously he's coming off of rust, not playing for what two years practically. You know he's what finished three and three. Um, it's funny now because you know we're we're in these mini cam drills. There's seven on sevens and whatnot, and you know everyone's just googling and sort of like uh, just overwhelmingly acting like Deshaun Watson is like this Super Bowl quarterback. He's throwing dimes, and but it's against you know we're not really the guys aren't playing. You know it's mini camp, so so even yeah. though. If you can't look Sean's, good in football in shorts, you're, you're well, not going mean, to make it in guys, the league. <laughs> yeah, I mean, come on. I mean, so, um, no, I thought how he performed last year was subpar. I mean, I think a lot of people were hoping for more. I mean, we maybe we should not have hoped for more. Um, the speculation, the, the, the conversation today is that he's looking super. But this is, I mean, we're talking June, what, 7th? And uh, we've got. The Hall of Fame game coming up, I think, August 5th. The Browns play the New York Jets. Uh, Joe Thomas is being inducted this year. So I think Deshaun Watson is going to have a great – could potentially have a great season. But as far as what what he looked like last year, eh. 
and and it has me questioning some things but you know right now everyone's just sort of like oh gosh he threw a you know he threw to a wide open receiver and there's no you know there's no corners back there to defend them so you're just throwing through air last year (laughs) last year when the Steelers drafted Kenny Pickett there was so much anticipation over him that you had the like the beat reporters were publishing his stats in yes. like OTAs. At, well, that's what they're <laughs> doing here in Cleveland. They're doing the same damn thing here in Cleveland, and it just makes me just it just makes me laugh because you know they're 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 running stats. They're saying, well, for in ten possessions that they were in the red zone in seven on seven, Deshaun went nine for ten. Like, <laughs> like what are we yes. talking about here? I just just over the top crazy. Like, yeah. I mean, we, we, we don't have anything to talk about. So we're creating these, these, these categories that it just, it's just funny. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody's, everybody's optimistic and undefeated right now. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, Hey, you mentioned, you mentioned, uh, Hopkins, the, the money, uh, contract, yeah. You know, yeah. et cetera. I mean, he was, he was set to make 19 million in Arizona. Right. He's, he's turning 31. They're, they clearly weren't going to pay him mm-hmm. that. And yeah. I don't know if he thinks that he's still worth that amount, but I don't think he's going to get it. Where do you think a fair value for him might be from Cleveland's perspective? Well, I think Cleveland's perspective, you know, you and Andrew Barry, our, our GM director of service, all that, you know, the president, he, he's good with budgeting and uh, you know, whatever contract they would create for Hopkins, I would think it would be per- performance laden, you know, that you, you, they'd give him some money obviously, but I would, you'd have to, you know, throw some things in there. I'd like, you know, Kareem Hunt, who's not with the team anymore. If you look at his contract in the previous couple of seasons, he had a, his contract was really based on, on performance being there for the games, you know, dressed, uh, suited up, not injured. Um, that, that shifted when the Browns, you know, worked his reworked his contracts. Um, you know, Hopkins, you know, he, right. I mean, right now the Browns have got what 14 million. I think in cap space, they, you know, I obviously Hopkins wants, you know, OVJ, you know, numbers are, you know, value. And, uh, you know, my colleague, Joel K, the, the left guard here with the Browns, our fanatical elves network, he's been, we have a, we have a segment called uh, the Ravens hate segment uh, <laughs> on one of his shows. And um, we were noting that five, that the Ravens now have drafted or, um, signed five free agent now uh, wide receivers who are who are former first round picks, and so we were speculating that you know he could go to Baltimore. Um, Baltimore would be dumb enough to pay him you know twenty million dollars or whatever you know an enormous amount of money because they're Baltimore. So, uh, yeah, you know, I, I'm, yeah. I'm usually a big fan of the way that they do business because I think they're really smart and, and calculating, yeah. but they've, they've really kind of thrown me off this off season. Well, that's the, that's been our conversation. Uh, Joel and I, we, we've had this conversation a bit because, you know, they, they have, you know, they had the former Ozzie Newsome, former Cleveland Brown. Great. So there was always sort of, there's always been this animosity toward the Ravens, obviously because for many reasons, the, the biggest, because they, they stole our team. But it's, <laughs> yeah, hard, that's um, a little hard to overlook that yeah, one. Yeah, and, and what makes it really com- complicated for especially you know fans like ourselves that are a little bit older Browns fan is that you had a, a player, Ozzie Newsom, Hall of Famer, who then went and became their general manager. And like you said, they're smart. They have been savvy with their their picks, and 
they were always picking players that the Browns should have been picking. You know, the fact that the Browns selected um, what two they drafted two uh, Ohio State Buckeyes this year that ha- that hadn't happened in fifty eight years that the Browns had actually drafted two Buckeyes in the same year. You guys, the Steelers, do draft. You're smart. You know to draft Ohio State Buckeyes. You know, even and the Ravens do that. You know, so. Um, yeah, as far as uh, Hopkins right now, I I mean, I think he'll hold out. I think he'll go do his tour of different teams. There's no rush for him. Right. So, do you yeah. think do you think the Browns let let's say they sign Hopkins. Are they does does he elevate them into contender status in the AFC, which is really really deep or are the Browns a little further away away from that? Do they need more than Hopkins or where are they in the in the pecking order right now? Honestly, I don't think they're that far off. I think I, he could be a, a, a difference maker just for the sheer fact that it's another, you know, a, a, a guy that has contended, who's played well with Deshaun Watson, who has a connection with him in the past. Um, I think those things help. And the Browns haven't, I don't feel, have been that far off. I mean, we had their season in 2020, the pandemic year, and then we beat you guys in the playoffs, which is still what we're we're still talking about here in Cleveland <laughs> but um we we you know the team's kind of gone the other other way a little bit uh, for various reasons the pot on on the opposite of that would be that you know you still have a coach in Cleveland they've kept their art we've kept our coach Kevin Stefans is going in the year four which is more than any other coach we've had since 99 so this is a pretty significant Moved the Browns are you know going into a fourth season with a head coach, so I think all those things um, are are helpful and adding someone like Hopkins could certainly put them in in that elite area. Um, you know, we're con- you're contending with the Chiefs, you're contending with the Bills, uh, the pecking order. You know, I think we've always I've I've felt like we've always been kind of that in that second tier. Um, you know, even when we had Baker Mayfield. Uh, you know, he had to suffer the pretty serious injury, but yet we had players in the past. Uh, we've kind of reshuffled things. We've brought in some, I think, deeper talent. You've got Amari Cooper. Uh, you've got now uh, Elijah Moore, who they've traded for from the New York Jets at wide receiver, who hasn't had a breakout year yet, but potentially he could do some things. So um, they would be really close. I think they would definitely be – a lot more conversation um, and maybe even respected more. I know you got to win to get, get be, be respected. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. The AFC is so deep there. You probably yeah. have a little bit of a separation at the top with Kansas city, Buffalo, and maybe Cincinnati in, in that top yeah. tier. And then you've, you've probably got like seven teams, the Browns. Yeah. I, if you talk to Steelers fans, the Steelers think that they've really improved this offseason, the Browns, yes. the Steelers, the Jets have added Rodgers. The Chargers always seem to be there. Jacksonville is an improving team. There's, there's probably six or seven teams in that next tier that all feel as though this could be a year where they make the jump. Most of those teams are going to wind up disappointed because yes. it's yeah. yeah. <laughs> there's probably only one or two of them that are going to you know make that leap. But it yeah. is a it is a, a a rat race in the AFC. It really is, and it's really you know like if you look at the Cleveland season a year ago. The fact, I mean, the, just the little things. I mean, I was going back and again, relooking at the season records and and how the how the Browns did. And you know, it started in week you know week one. The Browns escaped. 
They had a, a big lead, but then let Carolina back in. They won that game, which is dramatic. So the Browns fans are all excited going to week two at home. They're up big against the New York Jets. They're up 14, 13 points with under two minutes to go. There's no way they, they should have lose that game, but they did. And from there, you know, they would lose some extra, you know, close games to the Falcons, to the Chargers at, at, at home again. So, I mean, you know this. I mean, as a Steeler fan, I mean, you're, you're very close. I mean, the Steelers have had their opportunities too where there's two or three games that could have gone, e- gone either way. So, I mean, there is um, – you know, a chance for all of us, you know, and uh, not everyone's going to be at the top at the end of the season. It'll be interesting to see because, you know, the Bengals are, have really come forward. And, um, you know, the Browns really, you know, against the Bengals, they've been beating the Bengals. They they lost to the Bengals for the first time against Joe Schmo or Joe, Joe Burrow um, last year. The Joe Schmo is uh, in reference to my, my daughter came up with that. So I, I'll, I'll, I'll give her credit. So anyway, anyway, so, so let me ask you about the division, right? I'm going to, uh, I'm going to get you out of here on, on this question. Um, AFC North is intense football. I mean, it, everybody seems to have a fairly similar identity. They're all physical teams. They're all teams that are built for cold weather and late season football. And mm-hmm. from Pittsburgh's perspective, Baltimore is the number one rival and the, the Steelers Ravens yeah. rivalry has been very intense for years and years. Is is that true of, of Cleveland too? Who's Cleveland's biggest rival in the division? Who do the Browns fans get the most jacked up for? You know, it's interesting you bring that up because with Pittsburgh and Baltimore, you know, that that came, We, you know this, I mean, it came yep. from the fact that the Browns were stolen and moved to Baltimore. So that, that rivalry continued with a different, you know, name in Baltimore. I would say, I mean, for us Browns fans, I mean, for me as, a, as an elder, Browns fan, I would still say that you guys, the Steelers, are um, what I consider the biggest rivalry. Um, the Ravens, um, there's just so much hate. There's there's hate for you Steeler fans, too, or the Steeler team. <laughs> take that personal, but, John. Come on. No, 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 I, no. <laughs> no. I would say the Steelers, you know, are, are, are a natural uh, rival or had been. Um, the Steeler fans, you know, having the Ravens is there. I mean, it makes sense. You guys are competing against the Ravens. The Browns have sucked <laughs> for a long time since they since their return. Um, so it's going to take some time to reestablish some of those uh, rivalries. Um, I think for still as an older fan, um, anytime we can beat the Steelers, um, even in a gloomy year, it's always a, a very big, big day and a big moment. So beating your team in the playoffs in 2020, that was monumental. Well, just the way that game went too, man. I mean, it was just, I mean, 10 minutes into the game, it was over. It was unbelievable yes. the way that unfolded. Now, do you think that that the pandemic, I mean, I still believe this, that, I mean, we didn't have, there weren't fans in attendance. It was guys playing football. And I know, I mean, I think those sorts of things make a difference. Um, I have a colleague here that uh, on our Rod Bloom who does the uh, Browns Blitz show. And he often uh, talks about the Browns Pittsburgh rivalry and saying, whenever the Browns go to uh, Pittsburgh, you could pull fans out of the stands and the Steelers would still, you know, beat the Browns. Like you, we could, you could suit a fan up. It doesn't matter. I mean, when you're playing in Pittsburgh, um, it's just a hard place to win. So, 
Well, Ben Roethlisberger had some ridiculous record against the Browns of like 25 and three over his career, something like that. But <laughs> yeah, yeah like, you got to get everybody <laughs> catches up to you at some point. I, I think that he was near the end there and Cleveland was on a good run and they had a good thing going. And they did. Yeah, they really did. But maybe the Browns can get back and, and, and uh, you know, continue to compete. I think they've got all the all the uh, necessary things that they need to this year. They've got added. They've added depth at a lot of positions, and I think those things could really spell, you know, a lot more success. Uh, but as Browns fans, there's always next year. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> the ultimate rallying cry. John, man, I appreciate you coming on. Uh, it's going to be it's Absolutely. going to be fun. We're, we're not, you know, we're it's June, early June, but man, it'll be yeah. August before we know it, and. Yeah. It's incredible how fast it goes. So, and the NFL has done an amazing job at marketing itself as a, a 365 day, you know, oh, season yeah. and brilliant at it. Keeping, keeping guys like you and me uh, invested and giving us lots That's to talk right. about. Absolutely. Well, thank you for having me on the show. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we're going to wrap that up. That's uh, episode number 10 of the call sheet. We're flying along. We're 10 episodes in the books already. We've gotten an opportunity to talk to some really interesting guys, John, hear from the Browns and we've talked to Dave Stefano from Minnesota and uh, I've had guests on from the Jets, the Giants, et cetera. So it's really cool to be able to whip around the league and get some insight from really passionate fans, observers, podcasters, et cetera. So that's it for me, Kevin Smith. Uh, We'll catch you again next week on the call sheet. Have a great week, everybody.